One of the ministries that we are highly connected to at Lakeland is called Prodeo. It is a ministry that was founded by a couple of Lakelanders, um, Andy and Kylie Ewing, and we have a great relationship with them. We support them as they minister to at-risk youth in Lee Summit, kids that are uh, struggling at home, at school, whatever the case may be. And Kim Phila is one of their key, key team people, and uh, she is here today to share her story with us um, from her life and her involvement with Prodeo. So as you have a seat, please welcome Kim. My name is Kim Phila, and this is my story. My parents were divorced when I was two. My father was an alcoholic, and I rarely saw him. He died when I was 17 from complications of alcohol use. My mother raised me, but felt her only obligation to me was a roof over my head. When she was home, which was rare, she was unavailable in a depressed stupor. My mother's philosophy was, if you're hungry, get a job, buy some food. I started working as a waitress at 13 years old. I tried to belong with the popular kids, but we simply didn't have enough money. I discovered that the freaks had no criteria for belonging. You didn't have to have nice clothes or involved parents to be a part. I started experimenting with alcohol and drugs, then skipping school, cussing out my mom, getting in fights. Eventually, I dropped out of school. I never had any dreams. If you asked me when I would be when I grew up, I would tell you a waitress, as this is all I knew or could see. At 16, I started dating a 27-year-old man. I got pregnant, and the rest is a story for another day. I had my daughter when I was 17, and although I lived with my mom, she made sure I knew from day one that my daughter was completely my responsibility. I was all alone. I got a job as a nursing assistant, worked my way through school to LPN school, then RN. I met a wonderful man who became my husband. I feel especially blessed that my life turned out the way it has. It certainly could have turned out differently. I didn't grow up in a church and was always afraid to go to church after I had my kid because I felt they would shame me for having a child out of wedlock. But my daughter was curious about God and started attending a church with her aunt. When I was invited to Lakeland, I went. I felt I should foster my child's desire for religion, and besides, it was Easter Sunday. From the first day, I felt like Dan was speaking directly to me. I came every Sunday after that and got very involved. I never felt judged, and no one asked me Bible questions or made me feel stupid, which was another fear of mine. I now feel like I have a relationship with God. I didn't know what that looked like before. Three years ago, I was asked to help out with a health fair at church. While there, I realized that all the participants were teens. Kylie explained that this Prodeo thing was all about helping at-risk youth in Lee Summit become responsible members of the community. Hmm, interesting. Then a girl who was about seven months pregnant came through my station, and I saw myself. I felt God was calling to me to tell my story, that life doesn't have to end here, life doesn't have to center around drugs and alcohol to have fun. It doesn't matter where you came from, you can be anything you wanna be and do anything you wanna do. Thus began my journey with Prodeo. My focus has become helping kids who grew up in homes like mine to understand that they are worthy of great things. You'll find me with Prodeo every Tuesday, every Thursday, and various other days when I'm needed. When I'm with my kids, I can be silly, yet still show them what a responsible adult looks like. Not that they're all from bad homes, but teens can struggle even if they have great parents or just need someone else to confide in. I've seen God change lives. Some kids who have been mad at God have asked to come to church with us. We even had two kids accept Jesus as their savior last Sunday. There have been spontaneous dance parties, lots of laughs, heart-to-hearts, tragedies, and don't forget the blob at Lakeland Camp. 
If you would have asked me five years ago if I ever thought I would be working with teens, I would have told you, no way. But this wasn't my plan, it was God's. I feel like my life would have been different had there been a Prodeo for me. I may have turned out okay, but I went through a lot of turmoil that I could have, would have preferred to have skipped. I would have liked to not feel so long for so long. Today I am asking for people to join me on this adventure. Maybe just one hour a week, or even an hour a month, to help with our after school program. Or a Friday night to hang out with us, have dinner, participate. These teenagers are smart, they're funny, they're caring kids. So next time you look at my kids, remember, that was me. That could have been you. I had black hair, leather jacket, wore Metallica t-shirts. I was just looking for someone to pay attention to me. That's all they're looking for, too. Good morning. My name is Adam. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm on staff here at Lakeland, and I have the distinct honor of being able to share with you a little bit today. Uh, I am the one of the directors of the K through 12 ministry program here at Lakeland, and also uh, am now becoming uh, one of the directors of what we are calling the Emerging Leaders Program, which is something brand new. And you may have heard a little bit about it if you've been around in the past few months. Uh, but I can assure you that in the next several months to come that you'll be hearing even a lot more about what we're doing with the Emerging Leaders Program. I think it's going to be very exciting, cool stuff. Now, uh, what you may be wondering, if I put myself in your seat right now, and I'm up here looking what's going on up here in this general vicinity, I might be thinking, what in the world is going on over there? Is anybody wondering that? Yeah. I'm kind of wondering it myself, actually. I didn't, I didn't even tell them to come up. I don't know what's going on. Just kidding. But you can see that they've built something for me. And I'll go ahead and solve the first mystery for you. You may be thinking, well, I, I have no idea what that is. And I'll tell you that it's basically like a giant Jenga tower. Who's ever played Jenga before? It's a great game, right? Kind of frustrating, but it's a good game. Well, this is a giant Jenga tower. Okay, you may be saying, great. And I have a follow-up question. Why in the world is there a giant Jenga tower up on stage right now? Well, I'm kind of tempted to answer you by simply saying, why not? Well, let's be honest. We showed that Apollo Creed video here <laughs> several weeks back, so let's not get all uppity about things around here having to have a purpose, all right? Everybody just calm down. We can do what we want here. But since that may not strike you as a particularly reasonable answer or somebody on stage at this point, I'll go ahead and assure you that we will get back to the Jenga Tower soon enough. First, though, let's focus in on our scripture passage for today. So this morning kicks off a brand new series for us on the book of 1 Peter. Over the next several weeks, uh, Garrett will be taking us all the way through to the end of the book of 1 Peter. This morning, I wanted to use the passage that we just heard Katrina read at the end of worship uh, as a sort of introduction to our series on 1 Peter. Although, in, in many other ways, it kind of stands alone, I think, too, uh, on its own as a message. 
Specifically, I wanted to focus in on one particular phrase that really jumped out at me when I read through the scripture passage. And that was in verse 5, the phrase, spiritual temple. Now, some versions of the Bible translate this phrase in this particular verse as a spiritual house. Uh, others render it as the temple of God or temple of the Holy Spirit. But I think all of the versions are getting at the same thing. They're trying to convey this idea that the people of God are being built into a temple for God. And that's what I want to dive into a little deeper this morning. What, what does that mean? So the first question we might ask is, what exactly is a temple? I would guess that for most people today, the word temple doesn't really carry much meaning at all. Temples do exist today. We've got the Community of Christ Temple in Independence, my hometown. Any Independencers in the house? Yes. All right, it's good. New York City? Ah, nobody. All right. Independence is good, though. Shriners Temple? We've got those around. But other than these few modern examples, I suspect that most of us today view the temple as something, nothing really more than a center for superstition and magic, some ancient outdated thing that's no longer useful. Like the place where the oracles would tell the future in ancient Greece and Rome. And indeed, in distinct contrast to our own opinion of temples today, the ancients did have a very different take on them. In fact, the temple could not have really been more important to ancient peoples. For them, the temple was the place where heaven and earth came together, where the supernatural and natural worlds intersected, a crossroads of realities, a place where you could come to terms with the indefinable, indescribable nature of the eternal and divine. But even more importantly, the temple was the place where you could actually physically interact with and even enter into the nature of this, this reality. There wasn't exactly, if we're to believe scholars and their work, there wasn't exactly much that different ancient cultures agreed with each other about. But if we could try to pinpoint one thing, maybe, that all of ancient cultures agreed on, it might be that a great mystery existed in the world. A great mystery that was behind everything that they could see. And that somehow, and in some way, we are blocked from that mystery. We're blocked from fully knowing and understanding exactly what it is. But there is something more to this life than what we can see and touch and hear and feel. And thus, throughout history, all the rituals, all the sacrifices, all the religions of the world have attempted to get at this mystery, to break through the barrier, to, to try to understand and figure out what is this truth with a capital T. 
In the last several hundred years, however, especially in the Western world, people have begun to move away from embracing this idea of mystery. The Enlightenment brought about the idea that everything in the world has a natural, uh, even scientific, cause and explanation for it. And if we simply worked hard enough and spent enough time at it, we could get to the bottom of things. We could uncover and explain away all of these so-called mysteries. We could see through the facade and get the real truth behind the world. A truth that is so utterly unmysterious that we resolutely spell it with a lowercase t. And if temples, then, were the places where previous cultures explored these so-called mysteries of the world, then we no longer really need temples, do we? However, researchers and sociologists are discovering more and more all the time that people today are once again coming to the realization that we cannot explain away everything. There is a mystery that we haven't yet grasped and certainly haven't yet conquered. In his book, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. And I want you to just kind of listen to this and see if this doesn't speak some truth to you personally. The inconsolable secret in each one of you, the secret which hurts so much that you take your revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia and romanticism and adolescence, our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside, is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. The sense that in this universe we are strangers, longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality, is part of our inconsolable secret. It's to please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as artists delight in their work. It seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. Acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, wisdom, welcome into the heart of things. Someday we hope the door on which we have been knocking all our lives will open at last. I think what Lewis is saying, and of course much better than I ever could, is that there is a divine reality out there, and our very beings were made to attempt to engage it and to reunite with it. So perhaps our first conclusion this morning should be simply this, that the ancients may have had it right all along. Perhaps we do need a temple after all. Perhaps there really is some mystery out there yet to be figured out. Something that cannot be reduced and seen all the way through. There is an ultimate divine reality 
that we are constantly reaching out toward, that our very essence longs to find, we really do need a temple. This, however, is really only the start to our attempt of answering this question of what is a temple? To more fully answer the question, I'd like to take a look at three different passages of Scripture, which I think should help to shed some light, some more light on this subject for us. The first passage will be 2 Chronicles 7, which will help us understand what the Old Testament had to say about the purpose of the temple. The second passage from John chapter 2 will help us understand what Jesus had to say about the temple. And for the third, we'll come back to our current passage, the one that we're studying this morning from 1 Peter chapter 2, to address our current understanding of the temple. Okay, so first let's look at 2 Chronicles chapter 7. In this passage, Solomon has just built the temple of God. Okay, this is the first temple that was built by Solomon. And he has gathered all the people of Israel. Now, I say all the people of Israel, but that seems a little outlandish. So, all the people who were able to clear their schedules and show up. Or as many as the little viewing area would hold, maybe. And Solomon is officially now dedicating the temple to God. So, let's read along together here in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. When Solomon finished praying... Fire flashed down from heaven and burned up the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glorious presence of the Lord filled it. When all the people of Israel saw the fire coming down and the glorious presence of the Lord filling the temple, they fell face down on the ground and worshipped and praised the Lord, saying, He is good. His faithful love endures forever. So as we try to picture this, as Solomon prayed to God, God's presence came down like fire. The temple then became the place that housed the raw, uncontrollable glory and presence of God. And how did the people react to God's presence in this passage? Well, first, they were completely and totally in awe of it. The priests, it says, couldn't even go into the temple while God's presence was there. They couldn't even, even behold such an amazing thing. Thus, all they could do was fall face down to the ground and worship the Lord. He is good, they cried out. His faithful love endures forever. Let's go ahead and go to our second passage in John chapter 2. In John chapter 2, Jesus has just entered the temple in Jerusalem. And Jesus does something that maybe the people weren't expecting uh, Jesus to do while in the temple. And something maybe we don't even expect now Jesus to have done when he entered the temple of God. He began taking tables and throwing them over. Knocking money off of the tables and kind of yelling at people even began tearing down, physically tearing down parts of the temple. Let's pick it up there in John 2, verse 13. 
It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration, so Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. Jesus made a whip from some ropes and chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and cattle, scattered the money changers' coins over the floor, and turned over their tables. Then, going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, Get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Then his disciples remembered this prophecy from the scriptures. Passion for God's house will consume me. But the Jewish leaders demanded, What are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. All right, Jesus replied, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. What? They exclaimed. It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you can rebuild it in three days? But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed both the scriptures, and what Jesus had said. To put this passage in even more context, we should remember and keep in mind that of all of the controversial and difficult things that Jesus said to the Pharisees and to all the people of Israel, this was the one, the one statement that the temple is my body that ultimately got Jesus killed. This was the one that was brought up, according to the Gospel of Matthew, while Jesus was on trial and being sentenced to death by the Jewish religious council. But why? Out of all of the amazing things that Jesus said during his ministry, why is this statement the one that got people riled up to the point of arresting and killing him. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The temple is my body. Let's go back to what we learned about the temple from our Old Testament passage in Second Chronicles just now. We said that the temple was the place where the fiery presence of God, uh, where the fiery power of God's glory and presence could be found on earth. The kind of power that caused the priests to fear even going into the temple and caused the people of God to fall down on their knees, face down, and worship the Lord. The kind of power that Moses asked God to see for himself in the book of Exodus, but God refused because God knew that even beholding it would surely be the death of Moses. So now when we begin to understand that understanding of the temple by the Israelites, we begin to see what a crazy thing Jesus was really saying when he said, I am that. I am the fiery, powerful glory of God, which came down in the temple before Solomon and all the people. I am God present among you. 
I am that which Moses could not be near, and I am that which causes the people to fall down and worship God. I am the mystery you are looking for. If you're here today because you're curious and you're searching for truth with a capital T, and you're investigating how one might go about being reconciled to this God, look no further than this statement here by Jesus. God's glory is too much for any of us to be able to handle on our own accord. In the face of his ultimate power, we would all be knocked right off of our feet like the Israelites were in that passage. We need a temple through which we can meet the Almighty God. And Jesus tells us very plainly, I am that temple. I am the way you can be restored and renewed and reunited with God. So now we've talked about what the temple meant in the Old Testament and what Jesus meant when he said, my body is the temple. So what does it mean then when Peter tells us in our passage for today in, second, in 1 Peter chapter 2 that we are being built into a spiritual temple? That we, the people of God, are now the temple of God. Let me read again uh, the relevant verses, I think, from our passage for this topic, which are verses 4 and 5 from 1 Peter 2. You are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. <clears throat> you are living stones that God is building into his temple. Well, I told you that we would get back to giant Jenga at some point, and now is that time. Hopefully you have maybe even started to see some of the symbolism and the connection between this tower over here and the verses that we've been studying, or maybe you might just now starting to be seeing it. Of course, bear with me a little, as any good metaphor does. This one breaks down. It's not, it doesn't go all the way through. As you can see, these aren't exactly living stones. It's not made of stone. They're wooden planks. But I think the metaphor carries through, and I think we should still be able to see the truth that's revealed by it. If you are a Christian, if you have come to see, by grace, through faith, that Christ is God and is the way to God all at once, Peter says that you have now become a living stone which makes up the temple of God. Now notice that he did not say that each one of us is the temple of God, as though God could be contained in any one person. Rather, he says, each one of us is one of these pieces which together make up the temple of God. 
Thus, the temple is all of us collectively. Together, we now make up the temple. So what does that mean? As living stones, we lean on each other. We hold each other up. When one of us falls or gets pulled out, here's my Jenga skills. I'm glad that went well. When one of us falls, we lean in together and support each other so that the building remains standing tall. You see, starting with Jesus, we began to see that the temple was no longer a place, but a person. Christ himself became the temple of God. And now, in light of the authority that Christ has given to the church, and in light of Peter's words to us this morning, we begin to see that the temple is no longer a place, but a people. It is a collection of the people that God continues to call back to himself. That God continues to build up into a spiritual temple. And the purpose of that temple is to house the power and the spirit and the glory of God himself. And this becomes so important as we, the church, face trials and tribulations and the stresses and worries of life. Because we need each other. We need each other to stand tall as God's temple. We are so dependent on the stones that are beneath us and all around us to stay upright. But most of all, all of us, every single living stone that makes up this holy temple is totally and utterly dependent on the cornerstone. Now, I don't know, admittedly, that much about architecture and construction. And by that, I mean, I know virtually nothing about architecture and construction. Seriously, like Legos even kind of stress me out a little bit. I know nothing. But what I do know is that if you were to take down the cornerstones or the foundation of a building, the entire thing's going to come crashing down pretty quickly. And so it is with the church. If we do not continue to rest as the living stones on Christ himself, all of our efforts are worthless. As just a bit of a spoiler alert, Garrett will be navigating in the weeks to come through some very interesting passages in the book of First Peter, many of them about facing hardship and persecution and suffering. And let us not lose the impact of this passage this passage that we're reading today on that very subject. We can only face such suffering with the church all around us. 
supporting and leaning on each other. And we can only face such suffering with Christ as our cornerstone, supporting and bearing the weight of all of us. As the church, we must stand on Christ as our foundation by being united to him, by seeking him and his truth and his wisdom and his power and his love and his mercy in every aspect of our lives. If we do so, Peter promises us that we will be formed and used by God as living stones to build up his temple. Now we've talked about one very important purpose of the temple thus far. We said that the temple is the place where the presence of God may be encountered and experienced. And this, I think, is very true of us as God's people. We, collectively, as the church, must be a people. And remember, it's no longer a place, the temple, but a people. We must be the people through whom God may be encountered and experienced by others. Peter says in verse 9 of our passage that as a result of being, God's of being God's temple, we can now show others the goodness of God. And that leads us to our final point today. A second very, very important purpose for the temple. We must be the people that brings glory and worship to God. Let's remember one last time that amazing scene that we read from 2 Chronicles. We've got Solomon standing before the people. He has built the temple. He's praying to God. And God comes down as fire into the temple. It knocks the people right off their feet. In total awe. They can't even believe what they're seeing. And then, what happened? Well, I'll read that part again. They fell face down on the ground and worshipped and praised the Lord, saying, He is good. His faithful love endures forever. Amen? Amen. The Lord is good. His faithful love endures forever. If we, as the church, are constantly proclaiming that, then I'd say we're playing a pretty solid game of Jenga. And we're doing a pretty good job of being the temple, of being that which God called us to be. So let's do that. Let's proclaim that all together right now. We're going to say it all together. So what we're going to say again is we're going to say, The Lord is good. His faithful love endures forever. Say that with me. The Lord is good. His faithful love endures forever. One more time. The Lord is good. His faithful love endures forever. Please stand and receive the benediction. May we embrace our place as living stones in the temple of God. May we support each other and lift each other up always. And may we never forget the foundation. 
the cornerstone upon which we are always resting, Jesus Christ, our Lord. May we, through his power, bring glory and worship to God. Amen.